All right. All right. Well, Justin, first of all, thank you for sharing the piece of poetry. I know that was short notice, so thanks for delivering that. It's great to hear how to hear scripture and words of prophecy and poetry in the way they were intended. So, Justin, thank you. Now, before I begin talking through that passage in Isaiah 42, verses 10 to 16, I want to remind us all of why we're here, of the season of Advent, the season of newness, the season of hope. So let me just start with this refrain. You would have heard it before in the poem. He will lead the blind by ways they have not known. He will guide them along unfamiliar paths. He will turn darkness into light before their, before your before our very eyes. He will make rough places smooth. And he brings to you and to me a new song. These words were spoken to Israel in exile and slavery, not in freedom, essentially. Now, at the time of Isaiah's prophecies, there was... Babylon was ruling them. It didn't matter who was ruling them at that point because we have these echoes in the Old Testament of being ruled and then ruling, of being ruled and then being free. More so, being ruled. Isaiah shares these prophecies, these possibilities as newness. They know they're exile. They know they're not free. And they're welcomed into a new language. A new language of hope. And in the same way, in a similar way, how do we hear these words? On the one hand, we may hear these words as an encouragement to Advent, encouragement to the season where we're reminded of why we have the hope we have. And on the other side, some of us may come to these words and just look at them as mere words, devoid of meaning, devoid of importance. Our experiences have told us that God does not work in darkness in our lives that when we were in rough places and we prayed God wasn't there when we were in unfamiliar territory we saw anxiety, we saw shame and we saw fear but we didn't exactly see God and so when we hear these words we go well God what is this? what is this new song? Last week in Auckland, I was hearing a friend of mine preach at this church, and he had this topic talking about, Lord, if you'd only been here, and how often we come to these things when we come to Scripture, but then look at it and go, well, our experience doesn't match what we're hearing, so what do we do? Now, in a word to summarize all that experience, all that difference, let's call it cynicism, shall we? And we have this crossroads between, on the one hand, the newness and hope that God has delivered through Isaiah in this case, and on the other, our experiences, our cynicism. What do we do? As the emoji says in the song, what do we do? And that's where I want to discuss and have a conversation today about a question of where does hope sit? in our cynicism. And to add to that, what practices could we do 
to invite us into newness in spite of where we stand in our experience and our cynicism. Now I know full well that for some cynicism may not be something present, but I do believe that in us and in those around us this language of cynicism is there, and so I hope that this conversation stems well. Now to start with I want to leverage off what Justin shared two weeks ago. He didn't have some 10 step strategy to wholeness and wellness. He did have a few phases though in his model and I kind of want to start with there. Now he started with this notion of hearing hope. Without hearing hope how can we think differently? How can we be invited in something that's new if we are not hearing something different? And then we take this hope and we enter into what Justin referred to as the stump story, meeting our cynicism, meeting our experiences, meeting the truths and the stories and the realities that sit, maybe not in a stump, maybe it's an iceberg, but nonetheless the things that sit deeply. And this is where I want to share a bit about my journey about this new song I've been trying to figure out this year and it does not talk about childbirth I know Justin talked about that that's something I have not experienced and I don't know how that's going to look if I begin to parenting but I can talk about a house and going to the agent and picking up the keys to that house and driving in and opening the door for the first time and for something around lying on a floor was important but that was a thing then the cleaning and the transactions and actually living in this house. And this overarching question I was asking myself was, how does life look? Now, how could it look? Because I'd spent months and months and months hoping and craving for something different, and the house was the embodiment of that. And then leading to having it, and asking, now what? At the time, I was part of a wisdom program, understanding what it means to live wisely in, at home, at work, and everywhere in between. And for eight weeks, I would go along and enjoy great food and great tea, and would unpack parts of the wisdom tradition, parts of decision making, and it would always come back to me, this reminder, this newness being about solitude, this newness being about silence and making space to be slow and making space to find rest. As God intended. That was newness to me. However, I also had this need for cynicism. Cynicism telling me that I had to achieve to be somebody. I had to work I had to meet these expectations and then almost be guilted if I did and guilted if I didn't as a result of all of that. Why is there rest if there are things to do, things to give, things to give to myself? And so in between the crossroads between newness and wisdom in my case and cynicism and my experiences, I sat at a crossroads and whilst I was learning I kind of ended up back in a hamster wheel. Um, I've talked about this a lot, but this notion of just working and working and not thinking twice about it, my default was to work, and then like the hamster in this case falls over, 
I was stressed, I was exhausted, I was talking change, but yet work was picking up. Other opportunities were picking up. I was at Bunnings, seeming like every week, like staring down aisles and not being able to know what the heck I was looking for. And the choice fatigue and all the ruminating, there was no time to find solitude. And even when there was, there was no sleep, and that's probably just as bad. I was impatient. I wanted this idea of newness immediately. But maybe it doesn't happen immediately and something has to give, an intervention has to give. Now I want to tangent off my story for a second into this book of Isaiah spoken to Israel in exile. We hear the first 39 chapters of Isaiah talk about this word woe, this word judgment, woe to X part of Israel for not following the Lord, whether that was following Pharaoh's security or in other means of not obedience, unobedience, disobedience. Yet in spite of this reality, in spite of Israel knowing where they stood with God, Isaiah then points the prophecies in a different direction. He spends the latter half at chapters 40 to 66. We start with the words, comfort my people, says the Lord. Speak tenderly to them. And then we hear what Israel will be. And included in that is what comes in chapter 44 after, after Justin's poem in chapter 42. Where it says, I am the Lord who has made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread the earth by himself, who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and will accomplish all that I please. He will say of Jerusalem, let it be rebuilt, and of the temple, let its foundations be laid. What's interesting is that Isaiah is speaking prophecies and words at about 740 BC. And Jerusalem was intact at that point. It was in exile, but they were, they were intact at that point. Only catch is about 100, 150 years later at 586 BC, Jerusalem fell. Need to rebuild it. And then, 30 to 50 years after that, historians say somewhere around 530 to 550 BC, a man by the name of Cyrus comes into the picture and begins this picture of freedom to Israel. This picture of foundations being rebuilt. There's a timeliness here. Now, I sit at these prophecies and I kind of have a mind trip because I'm going, well, surely if Israel's in exile when Isaiah is alive, then why doesn't God intervene? The prophets sure weren't prompt. And they sure weren't impatient, either. And my logic doesn't really meet where God stands. Is it the point to be in exile for a period and then to be free? Like, how does that even work? And this week, that's what I've been wondering. What is God's logic in contrast to ours? And let me echo this with another prophecy in Isaiah chapter 55. 52, sorry. See, my, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted, just as there were many who were appalled at him. His appearance so disfigured beyond that of any man, and his form marred beyond human likeness, so he will sprinkle many nations, and kings will shout their mouths 
shut their mouths because of him. For what they were not told, they will see, and what they have not heard, they will understand. There's something to me about not only this prophecy of Jesus coming in in a manger in the most vulnerable to join us, to be part of humanity and to save it. There's this other bit about God showing people what they see and showing people understanding from a point of not hearing, from a point of not being told. Why weren't they told earlier? Why didn't they understand earlier? Why at a particular moment does something change? There's something here to me about timeliness, not necessarily an answer, but there's just something here as I reflected this week about what God's patience and His timeliness means. Maybe there's a purpose to the time itself, a trust, perhaps. Now, let me return to my hamster wheel self, my stressed out self, someone that's just trying to survive and not seeing an endpoint and going, why am I doing what I'm doing when I see newness and sit in this burnout state? Now, for me, Reflecting on those words I've just talked about with timeliness, my timeliness moment sat over coffee. It wasn't necessarily the soy milk that was this miraculous at that particular juncture, but it was the person I was sharing coffee with, who happened to be my boss at work. Her and her perceptiveness began to share with me what I was thinking about burnout, about energy being sapped about just running from one thing to the next and wanting to care but not having the internal reserve to make something happen and trying to do all these different things for different people but not asking the question of where I sit with these things and this coming back to me over 40 minutes and kind of looking at her glare-eyed raised two things with me that forced me to stop firstly someone noticed that scared me. Secondly, this realization that the that what was going on over the prior months at the crossroads was that I was going to what was safe to me. I was going back to the hamster wheel, even though I knew it wasn't helpful. I kept running back to that and kept trying to do as a way of distracting myself from this crossroads. And so I stopped. I had a few days off following that conversation and the more I sat in this, what just happened in this coffee conversation, the more I sat in grief. Now, why grief? Great question. I kind of knew why but I didn't want to admit it and it was revolving around these stories I was telling myself of expectation, of achievement, of belonging being based on what I do and realising that actually this was a part of my story. There was a part of my childhood when these stories came to life and they protected me. They were a safety blanket in the world that I was part of at that time. And to contemplate and believe in stepping into newness I had to understand the old the reasons why it came to life and the valid reasons why it came to life and then on the other hand all the consequences that came out of it and in particular remembering a pivotal moment 19 years ago where I thought well I don't think I'm going to be alive anymore I don't think I wanted to be my mental health being in such disarray where actively 
choosing not to live was a conversation. Now, I don't know why it was that moment that made that was my timeliness moment. I don't know why from that point the days and the weeks and the months were different, that somehow life just looked a little different, where peace and hope had entered in the back door of an alleyway into the deepest part, and it went through many alleyways to get to where it wanted to get to, but it started with hope encountering the deepest part of my cynicism. And there were tears. And there was sadness. But yet there was patience. There was love. And there was timeliness. Now, this coffee conversation did not only involve the hamster wheel, there was another part of it too that continues to confront me. And it's this notion of community. Managers saying to me, Jeremy, you need to be accountable, not from a guilt sense, but to be accountable. Where are you receiving and where are you trusting? Oh, that wasn't fun. What I'd realized as well along with these past narratives is another story that I'd kept telling myself was around self-reliance. That I'd be burdensome if I'd shared the deep things that were in me and that past experience told me that if I wasn't keen to solve what sat there, there was no point in raising it. It raised things around belonging to me and not feeling like I belonged anywhere because inherently what was deep was also very hurtful. But yet, and also by the way, my mental health was something where I kept my development or my cynicism of me and the person I paid and in faith I was brought up to think that it was only about me and my relationship with God and didn't really matter what anyone else said because who knows what they were saying but yet that conversation forced me to stop and consider well is this journey of life one that is done solo and the answer I keep finding is no even in a passage like Isaiah 42, which doesn't specifically mention unity or community, has these rhetorics in them that speak of com- something communal. Let the villages that Kedar inhabits, let the inhabitants of Selah sing for joy, let them shout, let them give glory to the Lord. Yes, we had an individual journey to this with God, but this was also communal where there was togetherness in what we did, where we could be, we could pray, we could share, we could love one another. And we could do so out of comfort and tenderness, as it says in Isaiah 40, where it's comfort, comfort my people. Where we can share cynicism and listen to hope, or perhaps vice versa. This year's been a bit of both of that. But to begin to receive hope and encounter a different way of thinking, I had to know that I belonged. I had to know I could share. And that was confronting. And I know at Mosaic we talk highly of groups of three. They meet on a regular basis to share in this way, to connect 
deeply. Now for me, that's a Tuesday morning, that's over coffee at 7.30 in the morning, and the coffee is great, I'm not going to lie. But that's not the reason why I'm there. The chance I have each week to know there is a moment to share, and sometimes it just becomes about work life, or home life, or very granular things, but we know that there are spaces, and then we've made those spaces possible to connect further with what hits us, and to have this sharing, and this listening, and this shared communal experience. Now, let's connect back to Justin's model here. So, we have to move from into newness is to hear hope, to hear difference. It's then to meet cynicism and to meet us a stump story. And I'm hoping that my last bit of storytelling here encompasses the last two bits. Firstly, receiving the newness and letting go of the old. And what I wanted to add today was this element of timeliness, this uncertainty about, well, when does God move? We know God does move in that receiving, yet it often revolves the letting go of old and how much time and tears and emotion that takes. And furthermore, the receiving and the sharing has to come come in a community setting where we do have the chance to share, we do have the chance to connect, because it isn't just up to me to know where I stand with God, or know what could be different. Now, with all this, what I wonder is, where do we sit with these things? Where do we sit with this preparation for Advent, in the midst of to-do lists, and the Christmas parties, and the kids' things, even? There's a lot going on. So when we think about newness and what perhaps next year in 2019 looks like, where do we sit in that story? Now, in a moment, I'm going to invite time to discuss and also to pray to share that communal aspect. But before I do, I want to connect back with what we started the reasons for newness, the reasons for hope, the reasons for possibility, through God, through prophecy, through hearing. He will lead the blind by ways they have not known. He will guide them along unfamiliar paths. He will turn darkness into light before their, before your, before our very eyes. He will make rough places smooth. And he brings a new song. Amen.